Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Lycanography, the podcast that codifies the canon of films from one of the world's greatest animation studios, Lyca. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm being strung along. So join us in our quest into the glorious world of Lyca. Hello everyone, welcome back. Jake, Steph, welcome back. You're not second strings. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start off with a question. This is Kubo and the Two Strings. What sort of string are you, Jake? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, I don't know, like garden twine? Ooh. Like the, that, the brown thick stuff that would probably give you a rope burn? <laughs> I don't know why I came to that. Maybe that's just a clue to my emotional state. <laughs> Yeah, you shot from the hip there. Yeah. That's, yeah, saying a lot. Steph, do you have one that comes to mind? The first thing my mind went to was string beans, so... <gasps> yeah, because you're, you're gardening at the moment. How, how are the plants doing? Then There's no string beans out there, but uh, some nice flowers going on, some sunflowers. It's going and all right. my brain immediately flashed to the very cheap ukulele that our three-year-old has, um, <laughs> Uh, three of the strings are still fine, but there's one that will just never tighten again. <laughs> well, I mean, there are three members in your family, so maybe it's appropriate that there are only three working strings on the ukulele. No, that that shows that uh, my partner is doing double duty with those two <laughs> strings, and I'm just the floppy broken string on the end. <laughs> But yes, we are talking about Kubo and the Two Strings, directed by Travis Knight, one of the main characters of our miniseries so far, finally stepping in to the director's chair. How exciting we finally come to this film. We should kick things off, shouldn't we, as always, Steph, with a bit of synopsis. In a small village in an ancient mythical Japan... Kubo and his magic shamisen unwittingly summon vengeful spirits who wish to harm him and his ailing mother. While on the run, he encounters magical creatures and learns the truth of his Earth family's connection to heaven and the stars.
Michael, very mystical story going on there. Uh, but tell us the mysteries of the context of what's going <laughs> on with this film. I'm going to draw back the curtain. So let's start with a check-in on the arc of the studio to date. This is our fourth Leica film after Coraline, Paranorman and Box Trolls. And each time we've had a different team of directors. And Travis Knight's all the way through says there's no house style for Leica. Instead that he likes to see the studio thriving through variety, not of art styles, but of stories. Here's a quote from him. I want us to tell a huge variety of stories. One of the things that I love about our slate that's in development is that everything is unlike anything else. It highlights how potent a medium animation is. There really is an inherent creative restlessness at the studio where we always want to challenge ourselves. We really want to take the medium into places that it hasn't been before. That's why we tell stories. So stories as an engine for creativity, stories as an engine for technological innovation, that really does seem to be the drive behind Leica that we've been teasing out throughout these episodes. The word of the week is, therefore, story. We'll come back to that. Start a count now, drinking game. <laughs> now, there is a bit of drama at the heart of Kubo and the Two Strings, but let me start with the company line behind the film. This is Travis Knight's directorial debut. He describes it as the culmination of his 20-year career in animation up to that point, from production assistant to animator to studio head, finally to the director's chair. He's done almost his time in every position at the studio. Now, finally, he directs the feature himself. And there's talk in interviews about how Kubo and the Two Strings, which is an original property, comes from the suggestion of doing a stop-motion samurai epic adventure. Travis Knight talks about how this got the creative juices flowing. He was a big fan of Ray Harryhausen adventure epics as a kid, much like Henry Selleck was. And he always loved Japanese culture, cinema, art. This was his chance to combine those two parts of what he loves. He also talks about how the film felt very personal to him. The two strings are our connections to our parents. And Knight um, says how there are two personal strings for him here. His mum gave him a love of fantasy literature. He talks about how she read him Lord of the Rings when he was a kid. And his dad, Phil Knight, took him on a business trip to Japan when Travis was young and that sort of was like a big life-changing trip that just you know, ignited this love of the country and the culture. He talks about coming back with the Lone Wolf and Cub manga books and things like that, about how that was so pivotal to him as, a, I think, a young teenager at that point or even younger. But that's the Travis Knight side of the story. So let's rewind a bit further back. Shannon Tyndall is an artist and a filmmaker who worked as a character designer and storyboard artist on a variety of projects in the 2000s, and he came to Leica to work on Coraline. And he comes up with the idea for Kubo and the Two Strings with some very specific details with personal relevance to him, such as the relationship with an older relative whose memory is fading. That's drawn from his relationship with his mother-in-law. Also the focus on paper art and origami throughout the film, that's inspired by his wife, who's a paper sculpture artist. And his story is quite a sad one, because um, he posted a thread on Twitter earlier this year about his experience with Leica, specifically on this film. And I'm going to quote a little bit here. He says, Way back in 2001, I had a crazy idea about a little one-eyed boy who made magical art to heal his mother. I was reading a lot of Japanese folk tales at the time, and I'd just met my future wife's mother, who had dementia. The story of a woman trapped in her mind, taken care of by her child, kind of merged with all these folk tales I'd been reading. 
so he pitched this to, to Leica. They loved the idea, and he wrote a draft screenplay with Mark Hames, um, which you can actually find online. We'll put it in the footnotes for the Patreon backers. You can find that script. They worked up character designs. His wife worked up paper sculptures. They even made an animatic of the opening sequence. Here's another quote from Shannon Tyndall. The studio loved it so much they greenlit the film and we began. After a few months, we had our first screening. Something not far at all from the film you saw in theatres, and they loved it. They loved it so much that the next thing you knew, I was flying to LA to direct Superstar Talent. Yes, I directed the voices and the first screening. All seemed well, but it wasn't. Long story short, after nearly two years of work, I was removed as director, removed from something that came so deep from my heart, and it nearly broke me. So that does rock the boat a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, we haven't got the full story, uh, but it certainly is a complicated story now. Uh, that story is Travis Knight finally making his debut feature, and it adds a little bit of shade to that reputation of Leica as this haven for misfit artists, united by craft and a love of story and pushing the envelope. Um, the film was released in August 2016, and like its predecessors, it cost around $60 million, but this time it only grossed $77-$80 um, million, so falling quite short of both Paranorman and Box Trolls, and you know, even further short of Coraline. Um, it did continue the Oscar nomination streak of Leica Films. Um, it was also nominated for Best Visual Effects, as well as Best Animated Feature. So that's, what, 20 years after Nightmare Before Christmas did the same thing, um, being nominated in, in that category. Um, it didn't win Best Animated Feature that year, so quiz time, gang. <laughs> uh, there's a Ghibli film in the mix this year and another stop-motion film in the mix this year. Of course, none of those films won. Do you remember what won that year? This would be the Oscars that were given out in early 2017. Ooh. Um, is it Inside Out? Or... Nope. Is it uh, Moana? Nope. Well, Moana didn't win. Oh. So is it... So Moana, Moana was one of the nominations. Moana, Marnie, Zootopia. Zootopia won. Yeah. So you're st- you've got the, the, the Ghibli film... And you've got uh, the stop motion film. Uh, this the stop motion film. Uh, oh gosh, Sean the Sheep. You love this film. No, no, you love this film. I love this film. I love this stop motion film that came out. It's the out. saddest st- stop motion kids film. <laughs> the saddest stop motion kids film that came out. Or maybe it's a stop motion film about sad kids rather than being a sad stop motion kids film. Oh, My Life is a Cool Jet. Yes. And then, Jake, this is this is your favourite, this is one of your favourite films the last few years. It's a Ghibli film, but not also, also not really a Ghibli film, but it has the logo on the front. Oh, The Red Turtle. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What an interesting year. That's a really good mm. bunch of films, except this one. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, spoilers. <laughs> The Red Turtle, My Life as a Courgette, or Zucchini, if you're that way inclined, Moana, and then the winner was Zootopia, alongside Kubo and the Two Strings, also nominated that year. What would you give it to out of that bunch? I would go Courgette out of that bunch. I think I'd go Turtle. I think this is almost a perfect um, category in the sense that I think that both Moana and Zootopia are very good Disney Pixar films if not the best. And Courgette and Red Turtle are very good European art films. And Kubo kind of lands in between in between those those poles. It doesn't... Yeah, probably Courgette. Mm-hmm. For me. It's 
good good choices good picks recommend recommend mm. them I'd, I'd be happy with red turtle winning as well mm. but um jake you've just let the mask slip you would not be happy if uh, <laughs> uh kubo and the two strings had won <laughs> but let's dig into the film even further in our review section Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Review section, gang. So there's a bit of drama behind the scenes here. Was there much drama on the screen, or at least compelling drama? Jake, you've already let slip a little bit. Steph, I'm going to come to you first with immediate reactions to Cube on the Two Strings. Also, bearing in mind, this is Travis Knight finally in the director's chair. Um, well, when I first saw this, I was very taken with it, very kind of blown away by all the visuals. It was like nothing I'd ever seen in kind of stop motion before at that point. But watching it again for the podcast, I was a lot cooler on it. Like, so much cooler. Um, you were, like, there wearing a beret and having a licorice cigarette. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> What is this? It is art? No. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it really did not grab me as much as the first time I watched it. And I think maybe because, you know, when we watch films for the podcast, you're obviously taking notes and thinking a lot about how it fits with the rest of the films in the series and, you know, what's going on in the background. Um, And, yeah, it's obviously very stylish. They're moving forward a lot in terms of um, kind of stop-motion innovation, but it did not not grab me as much um, in terms of story and how it actually kind of got across this... Well, yeah, what you said in the context, very personal um, story that it started out as, just that did not come through for me. Um, Yeah. But I think this is something about the miniseries approach we take, which is um, it can't help but shine a light on the overarching developments or or recurring themes of the filmmakers we talk about. And this is maybe even our third or fourth, maybe, film in a row for Leica, where it's about a kid who 
is either having stories told about them or is telling stories to somebody <laughs> at some point. So, um, yeah. But Jake, did you like this on release? Uh, I had the I had the pleasure of watching this at the cinema, um, and this was when I worked at the cinema, and I did a lot of Saturday morning shifts, and Saturday morning was always kids club, so I had to uh, kind of watch a lot of or bits of or overhear bits of pretty much every mainstream kids film that came out for four years um and so that meant that i was there was a lot of rubbish <laughs> that i had to wade through and then so when this was coming round, i thought okay this is like this feels like it's going to be different there's, there's there's something else here um and so i actually yeah i booked myself in to go go and watch this uh, not with a room full of screaming kids and go and watch it full focus. Um, and so I felt like there was a lot to it that was really going to gel with me from watching the trailer and reading about it beforehand. And I have, you know, when you have that experience where you feel like a film is kind of, you're nailed on to like it and like the film ends and you think I did like that. And you're almost striving to reach for that fourth or fifth star, but you know, it's not quite there. And I like I remember having exactly that experience of the shape of water, uh, and watching this. I remember coming out of it, and there were people that I worked with as well, like crying and saying how much of a masterpiece it was. Um, and I just remember thinking, "Yeah, it's good." <laughs> <laughs> and I so wanted to have a stronger emotion towards it and I, I didn't and watching it back now and not help being on a small screen not a big screen I felt even more distant from it mm. I mean, we should say if you are of the uh, crying it's a masterpiece type audience member send us an email gibbyatech at gmail.com we have a mailbag at the end of this mini series because yeah I think we're all on the same page with a with our emotional response to this film but Jake did you get a sense of how the kids were responding to this was this going down like minions with them or? no I don't think many showed up to be honest um like it, this this didn't really um draw much of a crowd I think there were more people like me that were watching it so I was a film student and it was like others who were maybe more cineasts who might be going to it rather than uh like eight-year-olds <laughs> yeah that's that is interesting because after both box trolls and paranorman where in the context sections we'd be having these quotes about how they're pushing towards commercial cinema and mainstream audiences family audiences i still think this plays as a family film but certainly almost all of those bullet points you'd have in your marketing are going more more towards the cinephiles and cineasts and people who do care about culture or art or Japanese genres and things like that. So I'm not surprised that it was a hard one to market towards those family audiences. Yeah, well, I remember compared to the previous ones, they were really going in on the the voice cast for the marketing on this. And an eight-year-old is not going to care if Matthew McConaughey's in it. But. Did you see that tweet that went around recently that was like, kids really love it when they hear the voice of someone from Mad Men in an animated movie. <laughs> kids love it when parents pause the movie to ask, who is that? Whose voice is that? This this has such that vibe to it of like, who, yeah. whose voice was that? Was that Charlie's Theron? I don't know. But I, I think like that's the only older people are going to care. Um, and I, I just remember the marketing 
being big on that and being big on the the look and the style of it and the craft of it you think yeah those people aren't going to be stumping up millions and millions of tickets for it um yeah i don't know it's it's just disappointing um (laughs) sorry travis like i like at the start of the film there's the um bit where kubo goes out busking you know where he, he goes to the town and he does his um he plays his two strings and the the origami people tell their story um and that takes that takes him all day telling that story so much effort goes into that into making those puppets dance and um and he's the artist literally pulling the strings of it all and at the end of that day after he's entertained all those people he doesn't wait around to get any money it's it's just, <laughs> i just thought that that's Travis Knight, isn't it? He doesn't he doesn't need the money. He took, he can afford to go into town, pull some puppets around, like spend all his time doing it, uh, and and walk away without ever asking anyone for money because he he just does not have to worry about it. Um, and I, I I don't know, like yeah, you've got the innovations, but at what cost? Like to me, it's the most digital looking film. Like it's there's something about it that felt more like it was going to be Kung Fu Panda and the sense of humour of it as well felt more aligned to a DreamWorks like half-term film. I, uh, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot in the craft of it or in the story of it that made me think this is significantly better work than a standard CGI kids film damn I don't, that's, that's not, I don't think that is controversial i think yeah. though i agree with you though i think like the humor the story the way that it goes everything is just slightly off like i i feel like there is definitely you know that scene where he goes into town and tells the story and you know starts you off with the whole if you must blink do it now kind of in, like inviting you into that world that section i really really like mm. and you know, start getting invested in. Um, and then just so much happens. And, you know, you get kind of at, at least kind of three or four moments in that opening 20 to 30 minutes where you're told another chunk of story and information to digest to then take you on the journey that they go on. And it's just so much. Right, there's, so <laughs> much there's so much information. You're told so much and shown so little. And it's like storytelling 101 stuff and mm. like you don't need to sh- fill in this much information we don't really care that much about the rules of the game or anything like the important thing is getting to the emotion but it's all about just how everything works and like th- I got like there was um like a bit where someone says down there there are worlds worth fighting for are there? Like we, we we haven't really been shown that. We've been shown like three characters, and they've gone to a few different locations. They haven't interacted with other people. Like they haven't really shown much connection to that world. We've had great postcards from that world, but I don't think we really feel like we need to need to fight for it. It's just yeah, so much explaining all the time. But people are explaining what they're doing. And that that is that's a prevailing sense of humour from the last ten years that we saw a little bit of in Box Trolls Paranormal, but here 
here it's so annoying like it's very much so that happened type <laughs> sense of humor and they, it can't let a moment land and considering that this this wants to be like their kind of really emotionally resonant one like it's really going for like making you feel um but it just undercuts it all the time. It can't let a moment breathe. Uh, and it's, it's like really, really frustrating because people, yeah, it's just constant talking. And it just, mm. I just want the film to chill out a bit. And I don't think, I don't think there's consistency to its relationship to like imagery and emotion. And I, I don't think it tracks like you, cause you've got Hanzo the mythical figure, you've got Hanso, the puppet figure, you've got Hanso, the beetle, and it, like there should be a through line that you can really tell what emotion you're meant to carry between all of those things. And then it says, oh, they were all the same thing all the, the whole time and they were your dad. Okay, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. how, how are you meant to feel about that? that it's, I think it's really muddled. I think so much of this is Laika in a nutshell, particularly our journey with Laika across this mini-series. Um, they're clearly... They, uh, want to be an artist studio but have an anxiety to be commercial or to make stop motion as close to a cg film as possible you know those quotes we had in i think the box trolls episode about how you'd never think these were toys on a desktop but there's a lot of innovation within this this is one where after Paranorman. I mean, Coraline was mostly in a house at the grounds around a house. Paranorman was in a couple of blocks of a suburb and a little bit of a forest. Box Trolls was within this one town. This is almost completely landscape exteriors. There are lots of featurettes about how they did stop motion water. The water does look really good. Mm. So some of these things that I'm sure the sort of boffins in that big warehouse studio in Portland figuring out how to do that with puppets and then the vfx alongside it and all this stuff really wonderful but it comes back to what we said we've said time and again on this which is um what's on screen therefore just looks like a slightly off cg film really because it just looks so polished and digital and then likewise on the story or script writing side they've never really had that um rigorous polish of um or, or confidence of a pixar or disney movie from the period compare it with zootopia which i think over the years has kind of dimmed in people's estimations but that is a very well told buddy movie uh, and creates a world creates a mystery antagonists and false antagonists and all the things you want and it's very funny um this 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 film struggles with that as the previous couple of like a mm -hmm. films that have um and so it's almost the riddle of travis knight at the heart of it where also he's making this tribute to Japanese culture but also can't resist these moments of whether it's self-consciousness or doubt where they have to bring in undercutting sense of humour there's a lot that I do like about this that I, which I'd like to point out because I think I've criticised some of the earlier films for this particularly earlier on in the first act when it's mostly about the boy in the town they do call attention to a lot of um, actual craft within the craft. So when he first goes to the village and you see them doing basket weaving and paper fans and dragon puppets, there is this sense of almost tactile crafted artwork within what we are then known. We know we are watching something that is a crafted piece of artwork in its own right. 
Likewise, the paper art, paper sculpture is wonderful and beautiful. Mm. The point where I, where I raised an eyebrow is where he's telling his story. And yeah, you, Jake, you say that he's a storyteller, but his, his magic power is animation. Mm. He makes the little paper Hanzo move. As soon as it turned into a plasticine figure, or a, it's not plasticine, but it made me just think of uh, of morph, mm-hmm. um, and it could like can, can like shrink down and jump around and change shape. From then on, no matter almost whatever they do, from then on, I just know that it's the the mad scientists and the wizards at, Le- at like are using a mixture of some puppetry, very high quality puppetry, three D printers, all the stuff we've talked about before, and VFX to create this world that we're looking at. Mm-hmm. It's interesting as well that I feel like some kind of CG studios are now going in the direction of making stuff look less like photo real. Like I feel like maybe a good um, example of that is like the Into the Spider-Verse film where they're kind of cutting out frames and and giving it a bit more of like a 2D look and those action lines even like, maybe, well... Less so with something like Turning Red, but incorporating some of like those Mitchell's. kind of 2D. Absolutely. Mitchell's versus Machines, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, interesting that we're at that kind of crossover point where we've got real puppets being made to look real and then CG being made to look <laughs> less real and more like kind of stop motion vibes. I think it's just one of the many ways that um, maybe Leica were in the right place at the right time with Coraline. And then with every successive film have just been a little bit out of step with where animation and mainstream cinema is going. And another way that that is, and we need to talk about this, is the whole cultural appropriation, Mm. whitewashing aspect of this. This was a controversy at the time because you have this film that is so indebted to Japanese culture, um, explicitly Japanese characters as well. But they are, by and large, particularly the primary characters voiced by white Americans um, and that is your Rudy Mara's your Matthew McConaughey's <laughs> Matthew McConaughey is here playing a character that is very specifically based on uh, the you know, sort of Yojimbo Sanjuro Toshio Mifune kind of characters um, which is um, but he's got quips because <laughs> yeah, Toshio Mifune loved quipping <laughs> lol and, can't believe I just stabbed that guy <laughs> and I suppose that just is is an example of how slightly out of step they were with what the prevailing tide was. Whether it's whether you want to call it cynical or not, Disney at this point is where uh, are starting to push this agenda of um, of either in the voice booth or in the director's chair or in the writer's chair, writer's room. They're going to have people from the cultures that they're depicting on screen. So of course this is the era of Moana, which feels like the the first of of many, which then goes on to Coco the following year and Canto most recently. Disney and Pixar are taking up that stuff on board, um, and you know even into the Spider Verse as well. You know, in, in the superhero world, there's something similar. And here's Leica, where they do have a couple of uh, Japanese voices or Japanese American voices. In the, ca- the case of George Takei, I think he has two lines, and one of them is "Oh my," <laughs> yeah. his catchphrase. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. That does, I think, that is a a, a a flaw in the whole project. Travis Knight was asked about this on the promo trail, and I've got a very revealing kind of reply for this, because um, he talks a lot about how Akira Kurosawa was a big inspiration on this. And I think this is sort of shows that 
he doesn't have in the way that some of the filmmakers we've spoken about these sort of specific influences and inspirations that he's tipping the hat to in a way that is very clear like Henry Selick would talk about the cinematography of Night of the Hunter inspired a lot of the look of Nightmare Before Christmas and you can go away and actually study that and see that there's something a bit more diffuse in Travis Knight's interviews where he talks a bit about Lone Wolf and Cub he talks a bit about uh, woodblock prints and um, then he'll talk about Akira Kurosawa but when he was asked about this dialogue between east and west he said the other towering influence on the film was Hayao Miyazaki from a different perspective just the way he approaches his films one of the things I love about Miyazaki's films is that when he sets a film in Europe it's not a documentary it doesn't really look like Europe it's something he internalizes synthesizes and weaves into his work I love seeing that cross-cultural exchange With this version of Japan we have in the film, it was the same thing. I was trying to capture the feeling and experience of visiting Japan for the first time, which to me was just this wondrous, magical place filled with the possibility and mystery and beauty. That's the feeling we try to capture in this movie. So he's trying to use the Miyazaki thing, which we've talked about time and again, about how Kiki's Livery Service, Howl's Moving Castle, Porco Rosso are all these sort of pan-European daydreams about what Europe looks like. But they're definitely Miyazaki movies, and they're not explicitly European stories. But then also there's something very telling there, which is almost like this is a tourist movie. This is like the fictional fantasy Mm. film version of the sort of BBC travelogue series. Well, the way that it's like this will linger on on certain things or highlight certain things, it has a tourist lens to it, which Miyazaki one doesn't. It doesn't go to, uh, like the specific places in Italy that Porco Rosso might be set and then has a look at like old nonnas making pasta and then cut out to a wide shot of the sea and then a few little postcard shots and then back to Porco. It's, it is following the character and the story. That's the priority. Um, and, and, and this is, it's not that. Yeah. It kind of feels like, naive and a little bit unthinking in that way because it it does kind of come off as a bit of a checklist of like what's what Mm. stuff is in japan let's like show show all the japanese stuff yeah Um, like here's here's a passing reference to buddhism and a statue um mm -hmm. just to so and we can recognize that and then we'll move on um and we'll just kind of we'll we'll hit them all it's Mm -hmm. it's but i mean yeah, we we're laying we're we're maybe being a bit harsh on it. Um, but there, there's some really good stuff like, like the 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 light in the film we mentioned like in Coraline like you've got the little LEDs like it really uses light really interestingly in that film and I think this like the way that this uses light is amazing like because it's having to do all those exteriors it means that they've got to work with the sun or the moon and how that will uh, look in the sky how it will look on the landscape and how it will bounce off the characters' faces. And I think from that re- the recreation of natural light and the effect that natural light has on people is amazing for stop motion. I think it's really, really impressive. And I think we'll see in Missing Link, and I might have mentioned this before, have we, have we have, there has been a moon in all of these films. Um, I need to collect this in a tweet thread. But if, if we encounter a Missing Link moon... Um, but all of their moons always look brilliant. <laughs> and, of course, they now have their customary bravura showcase sequence of a, of a big boss fight. Mm-hmm. We, we can count them off. The two, the two main ones for me are the skeleton and then the, um, the, the flying 
The Avengers monster. The flying grandpa. <laughs> yeah, flying grandpa at the end. <laughs> I think the the fight with um the sisters, the kind of Rooney mm-hmm. Mara character. There's a fight on the boat that's that's really cool and really well done. The boat as a setting is great. Mm, yeah, I think yeah they have so many amazing kind of set settings and set pieces and monsters to deal with. Um, mm. When it kind of when it's getting into dealing with those and fighting them, it really kind of flies and does really well in terms of action. Mm. Yeah, and the idea of having action choreography in stop motion is something we've not had to discuss at all mm. so far because very you know necessarily um stop motion doesn't do action in this way it doesn't do sword fighting mm. so the so the, the sword fight scenes it's very well done in terms of using stop motion to create that sort of set piece and similarly they you know what i meant by the showcase moments is they've made a humongous skeleton creature they made a humongous flying grandpa whale what, what what actually is he? he's like a big fish isn't he it doesn't have legs it's not grounded so they're actually like flying it through the studio um to to, to ca- capture that there's a there's a lot of achievement here in what in terms of what they're doing on their own terms speaking of the the grandpa fish man um so th- like that's that's meant to be the dramatic crux of the whole thing that's what we're working towards and that's the big boss fight uh and so he is from the, the moon world um, and wants to get Kubo there what is the lure of the moon world can you tell me any information about it He, you can live forever on the moon was that something you said <laughs> <laughs> Michael any, any idea of what the villain actually wants other than him saying that he wants the kid yeah, considering how much this film tells us, there definitely feels like there's a, a whole chunk of the setup missing. Well, and, and what, what we do know about the, the Moon Lad is that he wants to take um, Kubo's eye, which brings us to like the recurring kind of sucking in through your teeth moment that we ha- seemingly have on these films where we have to go... And we you mentioned it about the whitewashing. And I, I was thinking like, if you ask, like, so the cinema that I worked at had audio description screenings mm. and, and so many films have to have that, as they should, um, for people who are blind or partially sighted who are going to the cinema. Um, and you, you, let's say you're a kid and you want to go and watch Kubo and the Two Strings and you are blind or partially sighted and you've got audio description on and you can't see or you, can, you can't really make out too much of what's going on on screen and all you can really hear is that the the main villain of this wants to take out the main character's eyes and that is the worst thing that could happen like if you're that kid or if you if you're an older person and that's what you're listening to that's horrible i guess it's not too dissimilar from the coraline sewing buttons into your eyes thing as well there's definitely maybe an element of you know body horror in there mm-hmm. where it's kind of mm. It's quite yeah. Grim. I think it's it's a re- it's a relatively low hanging fruit for what is a what is a very scary thing that could be a threat to a mm. child, and your eyes are one of our you know, vulnerable extremities. Um, but uh, yeah, I understand that they then align that with him losing something that he doesn't want to lose, when really his power 
you know, th- th- there are many blind musicians in the world and yeah. blind storytellers and poets. There are like thousands and thousands of years of tradition of that. So it's a strange one to hinge the entire conflict of the film on or the threats to the protagonist on. I think maybe the the kind of conflict with the grandfather moon king, I guess he's the kind of like narcissistic patriarchal figure. The whole reason that he's down there chasing Kubo is because his daughter Kubo's mum disobeyed him and married somebody who he didn't want her to marry and this is his way of kind of reclaiming power over his family and maybe that is why you know his his kind of reasons for enticing Kubo back to the moon are just kind of you'll be immortal and you'll be under my control and it's kind of a bit of a grab back for control of this family that's kind of spiraling out that he doesn't want to let go of and you know he's an entirely unsympathetic character and i think maybe it's that um the villain is this abusive figure like head of the family figure um i don't think that necessarily comes off very strongly in the film because it does suffer from that like 40 minute ending where you have you know the fight with the sisters, the fight with the grandpa, the big kind of this is our lesson to you, memory is the most powerful thing that makes humanity. And Well, it, it, it does the thing that I think we've, we've spoken about on maybe the previous two episodes, particularly the, the previous episode where it the breaks are put on maybe 20 minutes from the end. We've had the big set pieces. Now we're going to have a chat about what the actual theme of the film is. And you say that the grandpa is completely unsympathetic until they try to make him sympathetic at the end mm. and um, make him, you know, he does his massive power cord at the end and turns him into a helpless, kind of almost dementia-addled human figure. And doing the thing that we've called out the films for doing a few times, which is forgiving the forgiving the ultimate evil and in this one it's the most marked way because the entire village come round and just tell him how good a guy he is uh, almost sort of wiping away the history of uh, of any wrongdoings he's done in the process i don't know how that how did that land for you two after he destroyed their whole village yeah it's so unearned because <laughs> um, it's like you are the kindest man in the village you're a great example some of the sort of things they're saying to him and once again it's the story of our time is that there are these powerful bad actors in the real society and we need to deal with that whereas these films almost just slightly seem to dodge that at the end where the upper echelons of society aren't uh, you know are excused in some way mm. which i find really fascinating about, about these three films um that we've made the sort of middle period of Leica between Coraline and and the missing link but it is true that it does um really try to over explain it and jake this is story time story corner mm. A bit of trivia for this, which I won't lead to the end, is that uh, the word story or any variations of the word story are spoken 31 times in the film. 13 of those times are in the last 15 minutes of the film. Uh, so, like a love story, they love it's the most story. important thing in the world to them. Mm. Well, I feel like maybe we're coming to the end of our story, which is the story of the review section of the story of... Kubo and the Two Strings. But before we get to the end of this story, uh, Michael, what do you think of the Beatles cover? 
Oh, I don't like it. <laughs> I like Regina Spector in her place and with her own music. This felt very odd in retrospect. I can't remember how I felt about it at the time, but While My Guitar Gently Weeps is um, is definitely a dirge of a song, is what I'll say. So it's very hard to make into a rousing end credits theme mm. as, as much as they try. <laughs> we'll, we'll save that for the Harris songs. Oh, <laughs> the songs of George Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> now there's a man with many contradictions a very religious man who loved formula one and hated paying taxes but that's enough about george harrison and enough about kubo and the two strings let's move on to the top motion rankings okay gang top motion let's go round the three of us and see where kubo and the two strings lands steph i'll go to you first I was worried you were going to do that. Um, so my current ranking, top to bottom, is Coraline, Nightmare Before Christmas, Paranorman, Monkey Bone, James of the Giant Peach, and Box Trolls. And I feel like I'm going to sound mad, but... Do it. I think I, th- this will go second to last. It, like, I can't believe Monkey Bone is now sitting middle of the pack for me. Um, <laughs> but I just can't... Like, I can't put this above James of the Giant Peach... So it has to go below it, which means it has to go, yeah, in second to last place. And I think this is because we're doing, you know, all of the Selick films and all of the Leica films together that it's just looking a bit crazy now. My ranking is going rewatch value, enjoyment while watching and artistry. And when you combine all of those together, this just doesn't have enough of those first two categories for me to go higher than it is now. So... Yes. Jake. Um God, I think I might be with Steph on this. Um Wow. Like just looking at my list, which goes Coraline, James, Paranorman, Nightmare Before Christmas, Box Trolls, Monkey Bone. I uh, I've actually warmed more to Box Trolls in retrospect than any of the other films. Because I think what Box Trolls has going for it is that it's mental. Like, like there is so much weird stuff in Box Trolls and not a lot of it works, but it's a really strange film. And it's, I, I, I'm kind of, despite all its flaws and the stuff that we got into about it that's bad, I'm glad it exists because there's not much else like it. Whereas Kubo, there are lots of other Kubos in the world. Like, I, I don't think, Kubo is particularly original and Box Trolls is uh, so yeah second to bottom for me as well Monkey Bone then Kubo Michael what about you gosh so it seems to be our points of difference are whether we think this is better or worse than Box Trolls I'm surprised Paranorman has stayed so high yeah I, I want if, if, well, I might do a reshuffle at the end because <laughs> Paranorman seems to have just been nudged up further up the pack by accident. I I would probably place this above Box Trolls. So my, my list is Coraline, Nightmare Before Christmas, Paranorman, James, Box Trolls, Monkey Bone. And I probably would place it in what is the sort of mid-table, which is Par- Paranorman, James and Kubo. Because James the Giant Peach I thought was artistically really brilliant, but just didn't connect with me. Paranorman was a very solidly entertaining well-made film and i think this may lack sometimes on the more entertaining side 
but is technologically very well made. And even though you say, Jake, there are there are many Kubos and not many box trolls, a lot of what we're seeing in Kubo is unique in this mini series. A lot of as we said, the choreography, some of the mm. set pieces, that is uh, at least pushing it above box trolls for me. So I'll place it in between James and the Giant Peach and Box Trolls. So still third from bottom. Basically a lot of chat just to say it's in the same place. <laughs> okay. Wow, listeners. Kubo and the Two Strings. More like Kubo and the Two Stars. From my read, this is quite a popular film. So this, I'm not sure if that's a controversial response from the three of us, but listeners, let us know what you think are the usual channels. We're at Ghibliotech on Twitter, ghibliotech.pod on Instagram. We're having a mailbag episode at the end of this miniseries, and we always love reading out emails from people who are there. Differing opinions to ours, taking us to task. Please send us in something at ghibliotech at gmail.com, and we'll read it out on air. Also, join us on Patreon for ad-free episodes, Discord, chat... We also have a footnotes blog for every episode that I put up with links to reading and listening and viewing off the back of the context sections. That's patreon.com slash Ghibliotech. Next episode is Missing Link, bringing us almost entirely up to date with uh, with Lyca's work. Until then, you can follow us individually as well. Jake's on Twitter at JKH Cunningham. Steph's on Twitter at underscore Steph Watts. And Michael is on Twitter at Michael J. Leader. Ghibliotech is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill and Steph Watts. Our music is by Anthony Ng. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.